Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show... We will be speaking with Scott Eyman about his fascinating new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided, which explores the life and times of this movie genius, leading to his banishment from the United States in 1952. Scott formerly was the literary critic for the Palm Beach Post, and author or co-author of 16 books, including the bestsellers John Wayne, The Life and Legend, and two with veteran actor Robert Wagner, You Must Remember This, and Pieces of My Heart. Iman also writes book reviews for the Wall Street Journal and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. He and his wife, Lynn, live in West Palm Beach. Scott Iman, welcome to That Said. Thanks, Michael. So before we begin talking about this wonderful book that you've written, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art sex, and politics collided. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a Midwestern guy, born in Ohio. Uh, uh, Fell in love with movies when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, basically because I had to get out of the house (laughs) to avoid murder, uh, my own or somebody else's. Uh, And it was a way of escape. It was a means of escape, essentially. And then I started to think about, uh, that led me to double features uh, and seeing basically everything uh, that came around. And uh, that got me thinking seriously about movies and about why they work or don't work, as the case may be. And I uh, continued through my teenage years. And in my 20s, I started writing and going out to Los Angeles and, and interviewing uh, retired eminences like William Wellman and Fritz Lang. Uh, and it gradually, what became a, a passion and a hobby became a career. That's the short version. Yeah, it's a great version. I um, was similarly... In, enamored of film and wanted to be in film, but my dad wanted me to be in law. So being a good ah. boy, I went to, to law school instead of NYU film school. And the rest is history. Exactly. Exactly. Any regrets? No, my son is doing it for me and him. So ah, good. it's all good. So how did you come to write this book? You say it was a 60 year journey. Yeah. Well, one of the things that made me fall in love with old movies, Charlie Chaplin was my entry drug into silent film, basically. I was 12. I might have been 13, but I think I was 12. And I bought an 8mm print of Charlie Chaplin's two-reeler Easy Street from Black Hawk Films in Davenport, Iowa. I still remember where they were located. Nine ninety-five, uh, a small amount to change a life. And I had seen clips of Chaplin on in Robert Youngson documentaries on television and things, but I'd never seen a whole film. So I just, it was sort of, it's just, well, there were all these Chaplin two-reelers they were offering. So I just kind of picked one because of the title. It just sounded like an interesting title and an interesting premise. So that's the one I I bought. And I sat there, I had a little Argus eight millimeter projector and I sat there in my bedroom projecting the film on a white wall over and over again uh, the day day I I received it. And I probably watched it five or six times. Uh, Once for the plot. And then I was trying to figure out how he did it. Because even then I realized there was something extraordinary about him as a performer. Because I couldn't I couldn't see the point at which he shifted from one mood to another as an actor, uh, from one expression to another. I mean, it was as as I mentioned in the book, it was like watching a world class athlete. There was no barrier between the thought and the movement. Absolutely none. And I'd never seen an actor like that. I'd seen athletes like that watching baseball games or something, but I'd never seen an actor with that kind of control and command and quicksilver, uh, quicksilver ability to shift gears. Uh, and I started buying other Chaplin eight millimeter two reelers, and uh, I gradually saw everything he did. 
up to and including bootleg prints of films that were unseeable in the United States at that point, like The Great Dictator in Modern Times. Uh, I saw The Great Dictator in a bootleg 16 millimeter print in an attic off Cedar Hill in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> freezing, freezing because it was unheated. The, uh, the attic was unheated, but it was the only way to see The Great Dictator. Uh, wasn't my print. It was uh, uh, somebody else's who was connected to the Case Western Reserve Film Society. So we skulked around like uh, 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 like we were making a drug buy, <laughs> basically looking at bootleg films uh, that weren't being distributed in America for one reason or another. I, at that point, I did not know why uh, The Great Dictator was unviewable in America, but uh, that all became clear as time went on. And I, I, as, as film became uh, a profession as well as an obsession, uh, I saw all of Chaplin uh, and thought about him a lot, but I never really expected to write a book about him. Uh, that came about basically because of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, when we were all locked in our houses and I had to figure out what I was going to do because I just shipped a book off. And generally I take six months or nine months off between books. Uh, but the pandemic, it didn't look like it was going to be a six-month thing. And I didn't want to be uh, without a project for years so I was trying to figure out, well, what could I write about without leaving the house? Because all the libraries were closed. Uh, Library of Congress, the Academy Library, USC, UCLA, all the libraries I usually use. Uh, so how could I access material? Uh, and then I realized the Chaplin Archive was digitized, completely digitized. And basically, I presented them with the idea because then I had to figure out, well, now where's my angle? What do I? Because there's dozens and dozens and dozens of books about Charlie Chaplin. I know this because I've read them all. Uh, so what's my angle? How, what do I write that hasn't been written before? So then I thought, well, he got kicked out of America. <laughs> that didn't happen to everybody. <laughs> it didn't happen to Danny Kay, you know, or Jackie Gleason, or or anybody else for that matter, any other performers. So. Uh, uh, I presented the premise to the chaplain state. They said, okay, they gave me a password and I was free to roam in the archive for several years, you know, uh, digitally. So that made it possible. Uh, so that was basically two years of, of, uh, uh, working in the chaplain archive. And then I had to do uh, bide my time and wait for the libraries to reopen as the pandemic gradually, uh, uh, moderated. And luckily they did, or I'd still be waiting. Well, so there's something to be thankful for yeah. from the pandemic. And I hadn't thought of Charlie Chaplin and Mickey Mantle in the same sentence, but there you have it. The uh, the the athlete that can glide uh, effortlessly um, among the different roles that they are playing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about Chaplin's childhood. You write that his childhood informed his life and his art and that Tra Chaplin's otherworldly level of coverage or his obstinance enabled him to survive a childhood that would have corrupted or destroyed most people. Yeah, I think that's true. If you don't understand Chaplin's childhood, you'll never understand who he was and why what happened to him happened to him. Uh, essentially, he was born into a theatrical family. His father was a reasonably well-known music hall entertainer, vaudeville entertainer in England. Uh, his father drank himself to death at the age of 37, which takes some doing. It's not easy to drink yourself to death by the age of 37, but his father managed to do it. His mother uh, was also a music hall performer, although less well-known. Uh, she had emotional problems. She gradually uh, uh, went uh, insane over a period of some years, and she was in and out of uh, mental institutions until she was finally permanently remanded into a mental institution in England. Uh, for a time, Chapman lived on the streets. He was about 14 at this point, 12 or 14 at this point, uh, because his father was dead and his mother was in an institution. His brother, Sidney, who was two years older than Chaplin, uh, was away at sea doing a, a Royal Navy tra uh, training expedition. Uh, so Chaplin was uh, completely isolated. Sydney came back. Uh, he uh, he asked his brother, "What on earth has happened?" Well, mother's in the asylum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Sydney took charge of the situation, uh, as Sydney was wont to do, uh, where Charlie was concerned. Uh, Charlie gradually uh, uh, worked his way into being a vaudeville performer, just as his parents had been. 
is Sydney had, had become a comedian with the Fred Carnot Company, which worked out of London. Uh, the Carnot Company was comedy on an industrial scale. Carnot had truckloads. He had four or five companies of comedians and a series of skits of, of shows. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the lorries would go all over England and even into uh, uh, the continent. Uh, doing uh, shows, and, and, and the Carnot Company became very well known. So he was always on the lookout for more talent, young talent that he could get cheap. And Sydney had proven to be a success with the Carnot Company. So Sydney got Charlie a job within the Carnot Company. And very quickly, Charlie became uh, the star of the company. And when the Carnot Company came to America to work in American vaudeville, and now we're talking 1908, 1910, uh, Charlie was uh, one of the stars of the company. His understudy was Stan Laurel, as a matter of fact, later of Laurel and Hardy. Uh, so by, by the time he got to America, Charlie was only 20 or 21 years old, but he had uh, 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 the lifetime experiences of a, someone who's 50 or 60 uh, because of, of the chaotic childhood, because his mother uh, uh, was syphilitic, among, other, among her other emotional problems. We don't know if her schizophrenia was a function of the syphilis uh, or completely uh, apart from the syphilis. But there were a number of, uh, of uh, dysfunctions uh, within the family unit. In fact, there never really was a family unit. The marriage broke up when Charlie was a very young child. So he basically grew up uh, having to depend on himself and on Sydney, And that affected him for the rest of his life. And you're right that um, he came to believe that he could not depend on anyone or primarily depend on anyone but himself, which created a distrust of society at large and sort of people generally. But that what was interesting, notwithstanding this, you write that his friends, although he didn't have many as an adult, not close friends other than Douglas Fairbanks, uh, that he, while anxious and um, cautious person. He was never a depressed person. He was uh, optimistic. I mean, most of his early films end with him walking off into the sunset with an optimism about them. And, and he was able to pick himself up and get on with living. Is, is that a fair characterization of him? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Tramp was a projection of, of some of Chaplin's best qualities. The indefatigability uh, the refusal to be uh, 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 to lose, and even if you do lose, the ability to wake up in the morning convinced that things will be better than they had been the day before. That was an authentic uh, aspect of Chaplin's personality. He was not a depressive in any sense, and someone who goes through the childhood that he had often, of course, are depressive or need something to anesthetize themselves from that kind of 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 burr under their emotional burr under the saddle that they had to endure in their childhood. Chaplin seemed to be able to use it as a goad, as a, as motivation, as in, I'll show those bastards, you know, I'll show them I can't be defeated. I'll show them I can win. I'll show them I'm better than they are. Uh, I, I think that was the, uh, one of his underlying strengths as an artist and as a human being. And we'll turn to the need for that um, when we get to the 1940s and 1950s. So the subtitle of this book is When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. So I'd like to sort of take them, although they interconnect with one another, in, in buckets of art, sex, and, and politics, and start with art. And you told us about his start in the arts in England, and he comes to America in, the, in, in those early vaudeville ish days. But I wanted, before we turn to the creation of the Tramp, tell us about his relationship with other great icons, Stan Laurel, you mentioned Buster Keaton, Groucho Marx. They were all in the mix at the same time, more or less, yeah? They were all young, rising, would-be comedians at the same period. And they were all getting their seasoning and learning their craft on the vaudeville stage. Uh, I mean, Keaton was working with his family, his father and his mother. They had a, a family act, the Three Keatons, they were called. And Buster, even though he was, I don't know, eight years old, seven years old, uh, was the one that got all the laughs. Uh, Groucho and his brothers were also uh, doing vaudeville when they were teenagers. Uh, because, and, 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 and the, the recurrent motivation for all this was making a living because their families really didn't have conventional 
uh, uh, middle class lifestyles. They didn't own homes. They rented an apartment. You know, they were on the road. They were born into the. They were born into show business, or wanted to be born into show business. Uh, Chaplin and Groucho met uh, uh, when they were both in vaudeville, uh, and Groucho immediately thought he was the greatest comedian he'd ever seen, and, he, and Groucho never changed his mind. And they would see each other occasionally on the road because you would run into because the bookings changed every week, and some weeks you you, you could go a year without seeing another act that you'd seen a year earlier, or you could run into the three or four times. It just depended on how you were booked because you weren't all booked as a unit. You were booked separately. Acts were booked separately. And the idea of vaudeville was a variety show. You'd have a monologist, basically a stand-up comic. You'd have a juggling act. You might have an animal act, you know, trained dogs, trained cats, whatever it was. Uh, You'd have a singer or two. You know, you'd have eight to ten acts a two-hour show, cumulatively. So each act would have, say, 10 minutes, 8 minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes. It depended. But but cumulatively, you wanted to get them in and out, the audience in and out in two hours. And you had uh, 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 generally two shows a day, sometimes three. You had the morning show, which was dead uh, because the audience hadn't woken up yet, and there were people getting off from uh, a shift at the plant, and they would come in and catch a show. And they would be tired from working and they would be sitting on their hands. The afternoon show would be better. The, the one you wanted to work was the nighttime show. But in working for all these different kinds of audiences and two a day and three a day, you learned what worked and what didn't work. You know, So when they went into movies, they didn't have to worry about timing their jokes or timing the act because they knew how to get an audience going because they had the clock in their heads from working with hundreds and hundreds of audiences in vaudeville. Oh, uh, good audiences, terrible audiences, uh, 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 poor audiences, rich audiences. They'd work for every kind of crowd you could imagine. Uh, there's a story in the book. It's one of my favorite stories in the book, actually, indicative, I think, of Chaplin's character. He and the Marx Brothers, Chaplin and the Marx Brothers, ran into each other in Salt Lake City. And uh, they knew each other before. Uh, and uh, the Marx Brothers were coming in and Chaplin was leaving for this next booking. But Chaplin had like 12 or 18 hours before he had to catch his train to go to his next booking, which I believe was in Colorado. And Groucho and, and his brothers were going to go to a cat house in Salt Lake City. And I didn't know they had cat houses in Salt Lake City. So it's a great story, you know, whether without the punchline. <laughs> but Groucho and his brothers were going to go to a, a, a house of prostitution. They invited Charlie to come with them. And Chaplin had nothing to do other than his laundry, uh, because that's what you did with a 12-hour-a-day break between bookings. You would do your laundry and relax and pay whatever bills you had to pay and then get on the train to your next booking. So they all go to the uh, uh, house of prostitution, and the Marx Brothers choose their girls, and they go in the back. And uh, Groucho was to the end of his life. Groucho was amazed because Chaplin was too shy to pick a girl. He stayed in the in the lobby of the uh, cat house, and played with the dog owned by the madam all night long until the Marx Brothers were through with what they were doing. And then they came out and they went back to the hotel. <laughs> but Chaplin was too shy to take a girl into the back. So for Groucho, that was such an indication of the contradiction. The central contradiction is on stage, Chaplin was an absolute master. He had no doubts about his skill level. And once you saw him, nobody else did either. He would saunter in five minutes before curtain, and and where's Charlie? We have Charlie's not here. Where the curtain's up in five minutes. Stan, Stan, his his understudy, put on your makeup, and Stan would go put on his makeup, and Charlie would come sauntering in before the curtain rose, and he'd slap some makeup on and take his position. And the curtain would rise, and he'd kill the audience. He'd slay the audience every time. What I take by this uh, casual attitude towards performance is that he had absolute confidence in his own abilities. He had no doubts whatsoever that he had the audience controlled. And he knew he could break them up, and he knew he could do his job, and he never sweated that. Life was another issue. Life was another issue. But he always knew that he had extraordinary capabilities in his profession. And that was the foundation that he built his entire life on. Not his interpersonal relationships, uh, not his ability for intimacy, because he was a, he was what you call a casual friend, uh, and he could fake intimacy. 
<laughs> you thought you were an intimate friend uh, because he would, but he what he was really doing was a vacuum cleaning you out of what you knew and getting everything he could get out of you. And then he'd move on to the next person and get what he could get out of that person. You know, mm. he had very few uh, friends that he was authentically close to. And maybe that's a product of his life on the streets as a kid also. So tell us about, I'm going to ask it this way. Tell us about the creation of of the tramp, which we see in the kid in the gold rush and city lights, and what you talk about as his aesthetic contract with his audience. So tell us about the tramp and his aesthetic relationship with his contract you called it i call it relationship with with his audience chaplin's character in vaudeville was a funny drunk he was an obstreperous drunk uh who could take falls and and but that was essentially his shtick in vaudeville he would play and he looked older than he actually was he would make up and he looked like a 40 year old roué uh obstreperous roué uh max senate who ran the keystone studio uh, in Edendale, California, was always looking for young talent, fresh talent. And he saw Chaplin in vaudeville, and he thought he was really funny. So when he had an opening at the studio, he sent a telegram offering to hire Chaplin for a decent opening salary. And Chaplin, uh, they negotiated back and forth. There's two contracts that survive from the negotiation. Uh, the first contract, Senate wanted the uh, reserve the right to let Chaplin go with two weeks' notice. Uh, in case he wanted to get rid of him before the year contract was up. And Chaplin held out for a full year no-cut contract, and he got it. <laughs> uh, so Chaplin showed up, and Chaplin's 24 years old. And he looked 20. A very young, very handsome, very dark hair. And Senate had thought he was middle-aged, because on stage, he made up to look middle-aged. And you couldn't tell the difference when you're 50 feet away. Uh, and he was he was disturbed uh, because Chaplin looked more like a young leading man than a rough and tumble comic. Uh, so he said, uh, "You got to you, you got to come up with a makeup. You got to come up with a, a comic makeup to make yourself look a little older. Go see what you can do." So Chaplin went into the wardrobe room, and basically, as he told the story, and I have no doubt it's true, he put the costume together in an hour. Uh, he picked a pair of pants from Fatty Arbuckle. And Fatty Arbuckle had probably 42-inch waist, and Chaplin was very thin, uh, and tied it with a belt. So the pants were huge and way too baggy. And then he thought, well, it'd be a contradiction is always funny. So then he went for a very small coat, a very tight, uh, constricting coat, uh, slap shoes. And because Senate was concerned about how young he looked, he said, well, a mustache adds years. So he put a little tooth, pasted a little toothbrush mustache on and a derby hat, and that was basically it. And it was thrown together, uh, basically, at his boss's demand that he do something to look funny, because he didn't look funny. He looked like a young leading man without, you know, on the, in his street clothes. And Chaplin was hiring, and Senate was hiring comedians. And he wanted a comedian that looked amusing. And Chaplin, when he was through with the, devising the costume, uh, looked amusing, because everything was a contradiction. Uh, because in spite of the fact that he's uh, the makeup is the costume is that of a tramp, the other contradiction was he has an internal elegance. He's very delicate. He's very careful with people. He's very careful with things, unless he isn't, in which case he'll kick you in the butt. You know. But again, he was all about contradiction. The costume was a contradiction. The attitudes were a mess of contradictions. That was Chaplin's operating premise. Uh, and he started making movies for Senate using that costume. And he made a couple of movies just with street clothes, too, where you can see him as young Charlie Chaplin without the makeup. And he's still funny, but he's not as funny as he is wearing the makeup. Uh, because the makeup gave him a character to play that he could enlarge upon basically for the next 30 years. And the films were immediately successful. And Chaplin immediately began agitating for more control within a, within eight weeks or so of arriving at Keystone, 10 weeks, he was agitating to direct his own pictures. And Senate thought this was absolutely insane because three months earlier, nobody had ever heard of him except in vaudeville. And here he is, he's taking the studio over and now he wants to direct. Uh, but Chaplin said that he would put his salary in escrow. And if the film was unreleasable, they could use, uh, he, he'd be willing to pay for the film, 
you know, so Senate couldn't turn that down. <laughs> so he directed a couple of pictures and they turned out to be every bit as successful as the other pictures had been. Uh, and he never let anybody else direct him again. So he was absolutely focused on maintaining control because, and this is, I'm being Freudian here, because he'd had no control basically for the first 15 years of his life. Zero control. He was completely acted upon. And once he got found his groove as an actor, as a comedian, as a human being, he was determined never to delegate control to anybody else as long as he lived. But you write about this. I asked it. I'll ask it in a different way. You write about that. At this point in time, he's among the most beloved um, actors, figures in Hollywood. And he, you, you talk about him having an aesthetic contract with with his audience, an understanding between them. I guess the tramp in some sense being his alter ego in a way to express his view of himself as an outsider. But talk a little bit about that. And then we'll take a break. And then I want to come back and turn to part two of the subcontract here of art, sex, and politics and turn to sex, which is the beginnings of problems for him. I think the idea of a contract between him and the audience was something he devised retroactively to try to explain why he became so popular so quickly. Because I don't think he was expecting it. I don't think Senate was expecting it. They were all stunned by uh, 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 this firestorm of success that erupted within four or five months of him starting to make movies. And they were churning out a picture a week, a picture every other week, short, short subjects, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, but by the middle of his year at Keystone, he's already getting offers from other companies uh, for 10 times his salary at Keystone. He was only making 175 bucks a week at Keystone, and people were offering him $1,000 a week to come and sign with them after the Keystone contract ended. So he realized that something was going on that he had very little awareness of because he was just working every day. He was showing up to work at 8 in the morning every day and doing his job and going home. Uh, but when he started getting these offers, he realized there was something going on out there in the world that he had no idea about. And I think in his, I, his concept of what he was doing never really altered, but he began to devise scenarios that would explain this incredible rush of success that he had. And one of the things I think was going on is because the tramp, and this is not necessarily something he uh, 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 intellectualized. I think it was instinctual. The tramp for the working class audience that went to the Nickelodeons, the tramp is one of them. He's, he's, he's being put upon by the swells. He's not given any respect. And he always fights back. He, uh, he, he, he kicks them in the butt. He trips them. Uh, he tries to take the girls away. Whatever it takes. But he will not lay down. And that was Chaplin's own instincts as a human being coming through, as a man, because that's the way he lived his life. He would not lay down for anybody. Uh, and for the for the uh, uh, upper class people that gradually began coming around to him, uh, I think what they saw was a certain elegance that peaked out on a semi-regular basis between all the roughhouse comedy and which would gradually take precedence over the roughhouse comedy as the character became more refined, as Chaplin had more success, as he began to shift the character towards a gentler, more empathetic construct than he had initially when the character was essentially uh, a, a disturber of the peace. That changes. That changes the character of the, of the Keystones and the, the films he made at SNA, the company he worked with after Keystone are much rougher and much more aggressively slapstick than the films he made like The Kid or The Gold Rush, where the tramp is much more of a gentleman, much more of a lost soul on the fringes of society, and much less aggressive than he had been even three or four years earlier. But it was a process. It was an evolutionary process is what I'm saying. Yeah, but he and his audience had a bond. They were each, mm -hmm. for their, in their own way, tilting against windmills true very true very true but I, I, I again i think this was a instinctually evolutionary process because chaplin once he began observing the audience response to what he was making he began to analyze it 
in a kind of posthumous way, objectively, is it now, why is that, why does this work and that doesn't work? And what can I do to make it work better? You know, because he was very analytical. At the same time, he's very emotional. He's not particularly what we think of as, as uh, intellectual, but he is analytical if you get the if you get the difference between the two. Uh, and he's trying to, like any experienced comedian, he wants to build on the laughs he's getting and get more laughs. And at the same time, because he's Charlie Chaplin and he has a need to connect emotionally with his audience, uh, he's also trying to figure out how to access that gentleness that he saw as the core of the character beneath the roughhouse, mm. beneath the refusal to be compromised, beneath the refusal to be bullied. That was also part and parcel of character. So he's got he's he's, he's attempting to do a, a five ball juggle in essence, if you think about it. Because on the one hand, he doesn't want to lose uh, the uh, the asperity of the character, but he also wants to build out the foundation of the character so that he can attract a wider audience and work in a larger context. Because he already knew by and he, after a year or two, he didn't want to just make two reelers anymore. He, the films, he wanted the films to be longer. He wanted the films to be more complex. He's working towards feature motion pictures. So the character in a feature, in an hour or 90-minute feature, has to have more depth than the character in a 10- or 12-minute feature. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back, and then we want to turn to part two of my trilogy here of art, sex, and politics. We'll be right back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. We are talking with Scott Iman about his terrific book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. So tell us about Charlie Chaplin and the, the sex category of this. Maybe we can start with his Woody Allen-ish issues and roll into who is Joan Barry and what is the Man Act? Uh, Chaplin like girls. Chaplin like girls a lot. Sometimes the girls were women. Sometimes the girls were girls. He didn't draw a lot of lines between a 16-year-old and a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old. So, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, I didn't want to overemphasize the nymphette thing because in truth, if you look at his sexual history, uh, there were a lot of uh, age-appropriate women in his life as well. Uh, he wasn't just strictly drawn to young girls, uh, but that was definitely a component of his of his sexuality, no question. Uh, so you, it, it got him. He, his first two wives were both under eighteen. Uh, both marriages were fast flops, uh, for good reason. Joan Barry was a woman he met uh, in 1942. He was coming off the huge success of The Great Dictator. And as he wrote in his memoirs, he was never interested in what we would call recreational sex when he was working. Because when he was working, and a work on a film could stretch for several years, uh, it was 24-7. There was no outside activity of, of, of that kind. Between pictures is when he would get uh, involved with with women. Uh, and that's what happened. He was coming off The Great Dictator. It had been a huge success in spite of everybody telling him he was insane to make a satire of Hitler. Uh, and he was on top of the world, and he met this girl who had been uh, the mistress of J. Paul Getty in Oklahoma. And she thought it would be fun to be in the movies, so she got a letter of introduction and came to Hollywood thinking she could s swan her way into motion pictures. Uh, she met Chaplin. Uh, one thing led to another. Uh, they became a couple. They were together for about a year. Uh, it was a uh, fairly tortuous, I think, relationship. Uh, they would argue. They, she'd leave. They'd reconcile. So this went on uh, three or four times. 
Eventually, she decided to uh, uh, go back to Oklahoma. Then she came back to Hollywood and told Chaplin she was pregnant and that he was the father. And Chaplin did the math, and he realized he couldn't possibly be the father. Uh, but he refused to settle with her. Uh, whereupon she went to Head Hopper, uh, the gossip columnist for the Los Angeles Times Syndicate, who had hundreds of papers running her column. Hedda Hopper uh, disliked Chaplin intensely, politically, because she was extremely conservative. She was one of the founders of the Motion Picture Alliance, which would uh, result in the uh, uh, fomenting the uh, Hollywood blacklist after World War II. Uh, and she regarded Chaplin as dangerously left-wing, if not a communist. And uh, uh, she also objected to Chaplin's uh, penchant for young girls because she herself had been married to a notably elderly roué named DeWolf Hopper, uh, who was about 30 years older than she was, uh, who left her high and dry without any money, and a child named William Hopper, uh, who became Paul Drake on the Perry Mason TV series. Uh, but she, uh, it was, so it was both political and personal with Hedda Hopper, and she lit out after him with a vengeance. Uh, all the other conservative columnists in America did as well. Uh, 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 Ed Sullivan at the New York Daily News, uh, uh, everybody, all, all the right-wing columnists lit out after him. Uh, then the FBI got in the act, uh, partially because of the Joan Barry case, partially because of his support for uh, aiding Russia during World War II, because Russia, as we were, were fighting against Hitler. And Chaplin figured, well, if we're all on the same side, we should open a second front and help out the Russians, uh, which Franklin Roosevelt was kind of tiptoeing around. Uh, and he made, Chaplin made several speeches, uh, fiery speeches, advocating for the opening of a second front. And as far as the uh, as J. Edgar Hoover was concerned, and most of the right wing in America was concerned, R Russia was never going to be our ally. They were, in fact, uh, an enemy in waiting. Uh, but they simply didn't trust them as our ally during World War II. Um, so the FBI uh, began a prosecution of Chaplin on violating the Mann Act. The Mann Act was a law that had been passed 40 years earlier about transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. In other words, it was it was, it was meant to it was to try to stamp out legal uh, illegal prostitution. Well, in 1942. No one was getting prosecuted on the Mann Act, but they dragged this 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 statute, which was uh, archaic at this point, uh, out to to hit Chaplin with because they said he had brought Joan Barry during their affair to New York, where he was making a speech, uh, so he could have sex with her. Chaplin's attorney said that's ridiculous. He could have had sex with her for the cost of a of a cab ride anywhere in America, which was rather insulting, but it worked, uh, and he was acquitted of the Mann Act charges after the jury deliberated for an hour or two. Then came the uh, paternity suit, uh, which she brought. Uh, he changed lawyers. He had an excellent lawyer for the Mann Act trial named Jerry Giesler. He changed lawyers after the Mann Act trial. The lawyer mounted, his lawyer for the paternity suit mounted an adequate defense. It was professional, but it wasn't extraordinary by any means. Uh, he took a blood test, uh, which proved he was not the father of the child. And he lost the case anyway. And people look at you strangely and say, well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because a blood test was not dispositive in 1943 in California. It became dispositive at the end of the decade, I believe, 1948 to 49. If the case had been brought in 1940 to 49, the blood test would have resulted in the case being thrown out immediately, the paternity suit being thrown out, because that would have been that. But in 1943-44, the jury could, uh, find, could just ignore the results of the blood test and find against him. And because Chaplin's popularity had plummeted between uh, the Russian business and the Joan Berry business, they found against him. He appealed. The appeal was denied. So for the next 18 years, he had to pay child support for a child that wasn't his, which I'm sure did not please him. Mm. But, it, but it's interesting because, I mean, we've skipped a little bit ahead of time. We've left the arts part after the gold rush, and, and we're going to go back in the politics discussion about modern times and the great dictator. But there's this period where he goes from being the most beloved character in, in Hollywood to this 1940s period uh, where he's ostracized. He's he, he Nobody 
Nobody loves him anymore. As you talk about, it was so interesting that this anti-chaplain bandwagon sort of arose so quickly over a paternity suit, which, as you said, he, he lost but wasn't the father of, and a Mann Act case, which was a trumped-up J. Edgar Hoover, Richard Nixon, um, Ed Sullivan, of all people, um, case, which he won. And you'd think that there'd be some level of vindication here, but, but not so. How come? You'd think, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, I think people put artists in boxes. I think the audience puts artists in certain boxes. And I think they have a certain amount of latitude within that box. Once they began stepping outside that box and philosophizing and giving their uh, uh, opinions about politics and or expressing their sexual desires, in, which may or may not be outre uh, or outside the, uh, uh, the box, as it were, uh, people can get a little sniffy. And that's true today as it was uh, 75, 80 years ago, which is the period we're talking about. Um, and Chaplin was not going to be put in a box. And he was venturing into territory that not everybody thought a comedian should venture into. Uh, he had been, ma he continued making silent movies into the sound era with modern times and city lights. Uh, sound rolls in in 1927, 1928, and he makes City Lights in 1931, and then he makes Modern Times in 1936, and he's continuing to play the tramp in silent movies. And the reason those are silent movies is because in his core, he didn't think the tramp could talk. This was, he thought as soon as the tramp opened his mouth, he's English, because Chaplin had a soft English accent. And... If the tramp opens his mouth and he's English, then the tramp is no longer a universal character symbolizing beleaguered humanity. He's English. And he thought that by doing that, he would be sacrificed by, by using dialogue for the tramp. He would be sacrificing the character's universality. And he didn't think that was an equal, it was a good trade. He simply thought it was a bad trade to, trade to make because he thought the character's universality was aside from being commercially uh, a godsend because his films, I mean, the tramp was taken as German in Germany. He was French in France. He was English in England. And actually he is an English construct in Japan. They took him as Japanese. There was no uh, uh, nationalistic differentiation when it came to the tramp. He was accepted as a, a metaphor for humanity, for beleaguered humanity. And Chaplin would not give that up. So when he made a, a talking picture, his first talking picture, which is The Great Dictator, and here he is making an overtly anti-fascist screed, essentially, a satire about Hitler and fascism. And nobody wanted the film made. The, uh, Hollywood didn't want the film made. They thought he was crazy. England didn't want the film made because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister and they had a policy of appeasement, hoping Hitler would just dry up and go away. Uh, and Chaplin was one with uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. He didn't think you could bargain with lunatics, with fascist dictators. They had to be destroyed. And the only way he could use, the only weapon he had at his disposal was ridicule and comedy, which is what he did. But he, he financed the film himself as he financed all of his pictures after 1918. He always used his own money. Great Dictator, great dictator cost a million four, which is a sizable budget for 1940. But he didn't care. And United Artists was not necessarily going to distribute the picture. And he didn't care. He said he'd rent tents, rent halls, and show the picture there. One way or another, the picture A would get made, and one way or another, B, he would show it. Uh, and he was adamant, and he, he basically got his way. He got his way. He made the picture with his own money. United Artists did distribute it, and it was a huge financial and commercial success. By doing that, he's pissing a lot of people off because of his willfulness, because of his arrogance, because of his overt anti-fascism at a time when the bulk of the American public was isolationist and continued to be isolationist until Pearl Harbor, which is December of 1941. So it's, a, it's, it's over a year after the release of The Great Dictator that we get into World War II. So he's making and releasing the picture at a time when the public is isolationist. And he's pissing people off by doing so all by himself. 
uh, because he's not going along to get along. He's telling people what he thinks uh, and using his own money, and he's impervious to public opinion. And that made a lot of enemies. Not just not just necessarily right-wing enemies, but people who thought he should stay in his box and be the adorable little tramp and be charming and winsome and, and not offer his opinions about politics and sociology. And you get... And I, I, I don't think it's changed much. I, th- I think, I think, uh, I, I think the public can turn on people today for many of the same reasons. If they think a, a, a performer that has been one kind of performer for a decade or two suddenly begins to morph into a much more public activist, people don't necessarily like that. And Chaplin's Exhibit A. Yeah, I guess it's a, a risk to become a premature anti-fascist. It certainly is, as he found out. Yeah. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and I want to ask you, who is Una O'Neill? We're back with Scott Eyman talking about Charlie Chaplin versus America when art, sex and politics collided. Uh, We've been talking about sex and now politics a bit, but I want to, before we move right into the heart of the politics and that which got Chaplin essentially deported, tell us about his wife, Una O'Neill, who he marries in 1943, I think, right? He marries her just at the time the paternity suit is getting underway, again, with Joan Barry, just, and he marries an 18-year-old. He's this how not, old? 53. 53. Uh, and he looks older because his hair is white. His hair, he was, his hair had turned white by the time he was 35 or so. And he would dye it when he made a movie. Uh, the rest of the time, he didn't dye it. But he, he had white hair. He's 53. He looked over 60. He looked 60, 65, which only made it a more extreme relationship. And, of course, marrying an 18-year-old was uh, a, a kind of ipso facto proof of, uh, of the charges uh, that had been levied against him. You know, in the in the Joan Berry thing, uh, nobody had any way of knowing that the marriage would last the rest of his life, and they'd have eight children, uh, and they would both be uh, exquisitely happy with each other uh, until Chaplin's death. But uh, at the time, it seemed uh, it seemed to fit into the confirmation bias that the American public was developing about Charlie Chaplin being a dirty old man. Hmm. She is an interesting character because she certainly is. She's the daughter of Eugene O'Neill. Tell us a little bit about. I mean, I've learned so much reading this book, um, but this little tidbit about Una O'Neill and Eugene O'Neill, who is you know is lionized for his his writing, is a very complicated relationship in that O'Neill family, is it not? Oh, was it? He was a he was a great writer, a great playwright atrocious human being just just abysmal human being he had no business having children essentially he had three children two sons and una both his sons committed suicide i don't know what would have happened if una had not met and married charlie chaplin they gave each other what each of them was had been longing for their entire life which is absolute approval Chaplin didn't want her to be anything other than what she was and who she was. And she didn't want him to be anything other than who and what she, he was. They were both absolutely content with the other person as they found them. And that's unusual <laughs> in a marriage, let's face it. <laughs> and you always want to like, eh, there's 10, yeah, they're wonderful, but ah, there's that 10% thing that's just driving me nuts. No, they were, each of them was fine with the other one, 100%. Uh, O'Neill was an absent father. He was an indifferent father. He didn't like his children. I don't think he liked anybody's children, actually. Uh, no matter what Una did as a young girl, it was the wrong thing. His letters to her are almost uniformly condemnatory uh, and scolding and telling her to shape up or ship out and how disappointed he is in her It's over and over and over again. And she's no dummy. Uh, she, her, she was remarkably intelligent. Her letters are fascinating, but unfortunately she left strict instructions that none of her letters were to be published. Uh, but she was every bit as intelligent as her father without the terrible social (laughs) issues that her father had. Uh, uh, and I have no doubt that she could have been a superb writer as well, but she had zero interest in, in, uh, in working in the creative field. Being Charlie Chaplin's wife was all 
she ever wanted to do. Uh, but the relationship with her father was catastrophic. And Chaplin, of course, was coming off uh, his relationship with Paulette Goddard, as well as his relationship with Joan Barry. So the fact that what she really wanted to do was tend him and have his children uh, was just like the sun coming out after a long siege of storms. Uh, and he basked in her warmth and her acceptance, and she basked in his warmth and acceptance. Uh, and uh, O'Neill never saw her again after the marriage. He disinherited her. He disinherited, uh, 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 and as a matter of fact, he disinherited her. And his first son, Ju Eugene O'Neill Jr., committed suicide. Uh, Una was close with her other brother, Shane O'Neill. And after her father died, there was a, 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 a loophole in the in the law that enabled her to get uh, uh, become an heir to the plays, the plays. But she signed her piece of the plays of O'Neill's plays over to her brother Shane, which didn't stop him from committing suicide as well. He was a drug addict, uh, but she didn't need money. You know, she she had access to plenty of money being Chaplin's wife. Uh, but she did the best she could uh, for her brother Shane. I don't think she knew Eugene O'Neill Jr. very well at all. But she knew Shane quite well, and they were very close. But he couldn't be saved. And neither could Shane, uh, or Eugene Jr., rather. So Tragedy. Oh, ghastly domestic uh, uh, situations. And, of course, O'Neill was a drinker as well. Uh, her father was a drinker. But uh, 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 no, uh, Una and Charlie would be a great, uh, a great love story all by themselves, except there's no tension. The tension is all external. You know, the tension is what is is what came from society uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, but it never it never uh, uh, phased them. I don't think a bit because she, her, her loyalty to him was absolute and his loyalty to her was absolute. 34 year marriage, eight kids. Pretty Good stuff. So, yeah, we we we're in the politics, art, sex, politics. Where we we've segued into the politics. We we've talked a little bit about modern times, the, the 1936 film, which is dealing with the alienation of workers in the modern mechanized world. The famous scene of him getting caught up in the machinery and being sent to a, a mental hospital couldn't have made the the John Paul Gettings and, and, and Henry Fords and everybody else very happy. And then you get 1940, The Great Dictator, which, as we said, he was a premature anti-Nazi fascist, and you had Neville Chamberlain and other um, folks uh, very upset because it didn't fit their politics. And we move to a period now of the early 1950s, and his revocation of his right to return. So tell us, take us, how, what was that about? Uh, Chaplin was an English citizen. He never took out American citizenship. He was always an English citizen. And that pissed off the FBI too, right? That was a source of, of uh, discontent on the part of the right wing. It was, it was perfectly legal. He was, a, he was a resident alien. Just And actually Hollywood was full of resident aliens, especially the English. There were a lot of English uh, living in Hollywood uh, for the duration of the war, uh, who never took out American citizenship, and who promptly went back uh, after the war, or, or to Switzerland in some cases. Uh, so he was not the only resident alien in Hollywood by any stretch of the imagination, but he was the only one who was pilloried for it. <laughs> uh, because of his politics. Because of his politics. So can I interrupt you just for one minute and ask you a question, and then I'll let you carry on. One of the things that I learned in this book, and which for all these years I had completely wrong, is that for sure I assumed Chaplin was Jewish. He wasn't Jewish. And, uh, but he, he had a Jewish sensibility about his humor. He, he actually did. He actually did. But the, uh, the Nazis, of course, uh, took him as a Jew uh, and said he was a Jew, but he wasn't. But he would never deny it because he thought that would be playing into their hands. So he just ignored it. He tended to ignore a lot of things. Uh, when, when the disinformation campaign began after World War II, in the late 40s and early 50s. He ignored almost all of it because if he hadn't ignored it, he would have been making public statements every week, you know, denying this and denying that. And he thought that was pointless. He only really came out uh, and publicly denied uh, uh, a very few things that were just insanely comically outrageous. My favorite was uh, in 1953, after he'd been kicked out of the country, 
there was a report going around that he was going to adopt the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, who had just been executed uh, for as communist spies. Uh, and that <laughs> he already had all these kids. <laughs> I don't think the house the house wasn't big enough for two more. Right. But he said that's that's absurd. It's ridiculous. But mostly he just he ignored all these uh, uh, insane declarations of uh, of uh, of political uh, uh, communism and worse. Uh, because he thought it was ridiculous, and he just didn't believe anybody would believe it. But they did believe it. They did believe it. So I interrupted you. You were giving us the narrative. We're in about 1952, and he and Una are going to go on a a trip to Europe, right? He, he's made his last film in America, Limelight, which is a beautiful picture, uh, totally apolitical. And he was going to attend the premiere in London, and 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 so he and Una were on the Queen Elizabeth II. Queen Elizabeth, rather, going over from New York to London. One day out of New York, uh, they had a notice from the INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service, that his reentry permit had been revoked uh, pending an examination if he chose to return. Uh, he's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. There's not much he can do. He continued on to London. He opened Limelight. It was a smash hit there. Then he went on to Paris. It was a smash hit there. It was a smash hit all over Europe. In America, it was picketed by the American Legion, uh, generally. Uh, but he had to figure out what he was going to do with the rest of his life because everything he owned was in America. His films, his studio, his bonds, his stocks, his cash, everything was in America. And he couldn't come back. Uh, what he didn't know was that about a week after they issued the revocation of the reentry permit, the INS had an in-house meeting where they agreed that basically they could not keep him out of the country. That if he came back, they'd have to let him back in because he'd never been convicted of a misdemeanor, let alone a felony. And that was their actual only legal reason to to exclude him from from coming back to America. And he'd never been convicted of anything. But Chaplin's back was up. He was absolutely enraged as some of the letters that I quote that he wrote that hadn't had never been printed before clearly indicate. As he, in one, he says, I wouldn't come back there if Jesus Christ was president. <laughs> He was really, really angry. Uh, and Una was a citizen, a natural, uh, had been born here. So she came back and took care of the business. She sold the house on Summit Drive. She uh, got the cash and the securities, brought those back to Europe. Uh, his brother, Sidney, was, was spending winters in America at that point. Sidney lived in Nice most of the time, except during the war when he came to America. Uh, but he was living partially in Florida. Uh, you should pardon the expression, uh, during the winters and then other times he'd be in California. Uh, and he took over the, the dismantling of the studio on La Brea, which is now the Jim Henson Company. Still a movie studio, but it's now owned by Jim Henson's company. Uh, so gradually Chaplin's uh, uh, existence in America was uh, uh, disassembled piece by piece. His main problem, as other than getting his money and securities out, what do I do with the rest of my life? Because he'd never planned on leaving. I don't think he ever would have left under any circumstances because he had just spent a couple hundred thousand dollars expanding his house on Summit Drive for all the kids because he needed more room. So he And he wouldn't have done that if he was going to be leaving in a year or two. Uh, but he had to figure out what he was going to do the rest of his life. Like, where am I going to live? He thought about England, but no. He, he couldn't. He, uh, he just couldn't do it. Uh, so at Sydney's urging... He checked out Switzerland. He liked it. Then there was the tax situation, which was much more uh, conducive to residents than England or, for that matter, France. Uh, so he bought a house, uh, uh, a manor house outside of Vevey uh, and lived there for the rest of his life. And it had enough bedrooms for the kids and staff and everything. And he was very happy there. He wrote his memoir there, made two more films, which were grossly inferior to the films he'd made in America. But that's what happens <laughs> when you're yanked out of your uh, soil, you know, soil that you've nurtured and fertilized for for uh, 40 years. And suddenly you have to leave under duress. Uh, it's no it's no surprise that uh, the stuff he made in, in Europe was inferior to the stuff he'd made in America um, because he lost his. He'd lost whatever it was that made him feel comfortable. Like he'd lost his home. He lost his home base. Mm. And yeah. that was distressing, I'm sure, emotionally distressing. Yeah, well, for a person who started out homeless to sort of end right. up homeless again, 
enough's enough, I guess. Yeah, but he needed to lower the temperature. And he did. He did. But the corollary to lowering the temperature was a certain loss of impetus as an artist. Mm. So it's interesting. When I read the book, I thought to myself, huh, he's the first example of the cancel culture. He was canceled yeah. by the, by the by, in this case, the right wing. Yeah. So he lives in Switzerland and he's, you know, slowly regaining sort of the, the love of America. He didn't really lose it in England all that much. He never lost it in Europe. He was always, he, he, he never lost the affection of the, of the European public. He was still immensely popular all over Europe. Uh, but in America, slowly his enemies died off. Mm. Hoover died, Hedda Hopper died, and the blacklist period ended uh, in late in the 50s, 57, 58. All those people that got blacklisted started working again in the movie industry. Yeah. Dalton Trumbo and the rest. Chaplin didn't come back, though. Chaplin refused to come back and work here. Yeah. Uh, and then he got, they got voted him an honorary Oscar in 1972. Yeah, and that's what I want to, that's what I want to turn to. So he's living in, he's living in Switzerland, you know, sort of reclusively um, a bit. Um, all these people have died. His enemies have died. Ed Sullivan has decided he's going to discover the Beatles instead of his right wing um, news um, journal. And it turns to 1972. And so tell us about how that came to pass and how he received it. And most importantly, how he was received. Well, to understand what happened in 1972, you have to understand what happened in 1952. When he was kicked out of the country uh, in September 52, precisely three people in Hollywood stood up for him and issued statements saying, that this was bullshit, that he'd been, that, that he didn't deserve this and that he was a loyal subject, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those three people were Sam Goldwyn, William Wyler, and Cary Grant. Everybody else kept their mouths shut. Everybody else kept their mouths shut. So the town was full of main chancers, which is no surprise. Because <laughs> it was, a, nobody else wanted to get strung up the way Chaplin had been strung up, you know, so they kept their mouths shut, except for Wyler, Goldwyn, and Cary Grant. Um, but by 1972, uh, the blacklisters were all dead, basically. And it was safe to say, oops, we're sorry. You know, so they gave him an honorary Oscar. They invited him to come to Los Angeles and accept it. They kept, usually they give the honorary Oscar in the middle of the show or towards the beginning of the show because nobody cares. Uh, but for Charlie Chaplin, they made it the end, end of the show, the very end of the show. And the audience, and he, they had a, a clip. 10 minute clip, eight or 10 minutes of Chaplin clips. And they faded out on the clips and faded up on Chaplin standing on stage. Now at this point, he's 83 years old and he doesn't really look like Charlie Chaplin anymore. He's, he's a little rounder. He's elderly. Old age is starting to have its way with him as it always does. If you last long enough. Uh, and the audience rose as one and applauded for minutes on end. And you can see it on YouTube and you can see how stunned he is that I don't know what he expected to have happen, but it's clear that he had no expectations of the kind of ovation that he got and it washes over him and he's clearly extremely moved and almost inarticulate. He stumbles over a couple, he gets a couple sentences out, basically, thank you. Thank you for the honor of inviting me here. You're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you. That's about as much as he can get out. And they give him the Oscar and Una comes out and they play Smile. The orchestra goes into Smile, a song he wrote for Modern Times, which became a standard. And it's very moving even now, uh, uh, 50 years later. It's very moving. Because on the one hand, the town, the industry is saying, we're sorry, this happened. And on the other hand, he's saying, I accept your apology. Hmm. But it was too late. Yeah. It's too late because he's old and frail and in decline. And but it closed the circle. Yeah. It closed the circle of his life, which is really all any of us can ask for. Yeah. And good for him that he came because I expect it must have been a little, you know, too little, too late. I'm not coming. 
in his mind, right? That was a function. He did. He did say things like that. He said, "I'm coming to America. I fully expect to be shot." Was one quote <laughs> because he didn't know what he was going to encounter. He really didn't, because uh, Hollywood had been. Uh, this is 20 years after he'd been kicked out of the country. He didn't know if there were going to be snipers on the on on the roofs, you know, because there had been plenty of snipers on the roofs the last time he saw it. Last time he saw the country, so I'm sure there was some trepidation. He, what if they hiss? What if they boo? He didn't know. He had no way of knowing. But he took the gamble. He took the gamble, and it, it and he and the thing of, I t- I knew his son Sidney, who was named after his brother Sidney. Sidney was a, a delightful guy, good actor, small career because he didn't like acting, but he was very charming. He was the original Nicky Arnstein and Funny Girl opposite Barbara Streisand on Broadway. Got a got a Tony for it. Uh, anyway, but Sidney said he said the funny thing was about the Oscar. He didn't care. He didn't care about awards. It meant nothing. Awards meant nothing to him. Academy Awards meant nothing to him. New York Film Critics Awards meant nothing to him. He said the he was he didn't he said he considered himself a good workman. He said people called him a genius. He didn't use that word. He considered himself a good workman. His vision, his idea of himself was as a guy who showed up every morning at eight o'clock and beat his brains out until the day was over and it was time to go home to make the movie as good as it could possibly be or the memoir or whatever he happened or the music score he was writing, whatever he was doing. His idea of himself was as a, as a, as a good workman. And he said, he didn't care about awards. He said, but he did care about that Oscar. You know, it was one of those things that was on the mantle in, in Switzerland. He didn't, he didn't put it, you know, in the bathroom or something like, like people do who, who, who want you to know they're too, it, too uh, the, too proud to take an Oscar seriously. No, he took it seriously. It yeah. meant a lot to him. That one. And if you Google who has received the longest standing ovation in Oscars history, yeah, it's Charlie Chaplin in 1972. So 1975 comes along. He gets knighted by Queen Elizabeth, and, and then he, he he ultimately passes away. So the last question, Scott, I have for you is: What lessons should we take away? From this book, what, what do you think Chaplin would have us take away in looking at this narrative that you've crafted? If you could reduce his 88 years on earth to uh, two sentences, do your work, never give up. Because that's really what his life comes down to. He accomplished more than I think he even imagined he could because of his work ethic. And he never, ever stop trying. He never gave up, even when he was far too old and far too feeble to make a movie. And his mind was not what it had been. He was still full of plans for a picture, still full of plans for a picture. He was in constant creative ferment uh, until he was almost 90 years old. Well, you can't ask for more than that from any creator. You really can't. Uh, And he never capitulated. He never truckled. He never dance to anybody else's tune but his own no retreat no surrender never never so the book is charlie chaplin versus america when art sex and politics collided scott iman it's a terrific book i wish you all the great success in its sales and i'm looking forward to the next book and i thank you so much for appearing with me on that said this afternoon thank you michael i'll look forward to the next time That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.